All right, I need you guys to uh, be honest with me. I'm going to ask you guys a question, all right? How many of you guys in the 90s and early 2000s read any of the Left Behind books? How many read Left Behind? Delfina, all right. All right, Gretchen. All right, Lisette, all right. I didn't know that. Hey, uh, so good. Uh, some others, all right. So a good handful. Uh, let, let me just ask this. How many know what the Left Behind books are? Raise your hand if you know what the Left Okay, all right. Nick Cage movie, doing some work out there, helping people, helping people know about the Left Behind books. So I, I'll be honest with you. I read all of them, okay? I... I read all of the Left Behind books. There's like 10 or 12 of them. They came out when I was in junior high and high school. And in the church I was part of, they were definitely popular. But if you don't know, for those younger in the room, these books were a smash hit across America. Like lots of people were reading these books. You'd be watching TV and you'd see celebrities like in, on reality shows reading these books. And like all, all kinds of different um, people were reading these books. And if you don't know what the books are about, the Left Behind series is about the supposed last seven years of the earth before Jesus returns. So it's kind of like what they call the tribulation and the great tribulation or what popular culture would call like the apocalypse. Uh, and they say, hey, this lasts seven years and there's all these kinds of things that, that happens in these seven years. And, and there's bizarre things, there's weird things. And, and the series, to be clear, is fictional. Because I don't know if you know that the earth hasn't, ended yet. And so, uh, so it's a fictional series. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of a fun adventure series. Uh, and, and a lot of Americans then especially thought this is how it could go down. Like this is how the last seven years of the earth could go down. Like they would see different Bible verses and they would make these connections. They said this, uh, and these authors who wrote it, they said this is, this is how it could go down. And now even I get in lots of conversations with Christians of all types who maybe they wouldn't say they believe the Left Behind series, but they believe things very similar to the Left Behind series. They have lots of thoughts uh, that are, are pretty similar and kind of this sort of speculative theology about how the last, usually, what they will say, seven years of the earth will go. And so I want to be clear on the front end, and I'm not, it's okay if you disagree with me, and this is a great pastoral moment. Sometimes you're going to disagree with me, and it's like totally okay. Um, so, and I'm going to disagree with you, and it's, we can be humans. And so uh, I, I, I think uh, when it comes to the Left Behind series and the sort of theology uh, that the Left Behind ser series is promoting, I do not think it's accurately portraying what the Bible says, okay? And you, got, you kind of got the pendulum swing usually in the room. Most people are kind of like, I don't even touch that stuff or think about that stuff, or I really believe that stuff deeply. And so I'm going to be clear on the front end. The Left Behind series, I do not think accurately portrays uh, how the Bible talks about the end of time really at all. Maybe there's some things in there, but I don't. In fact, that sort of theology, if, again, I'm, if I'm going to be honest, I'm, I'm not trying to be insulting. That sort of theology to me is this kind of speculative theology where there's all these connections being made where there actually aren't connections. Like there's connections to all these things. And, and part of how you can know is you can just study the history of people believing this stuff. They always predicted things would happen and then they die and then those things never happen. And so I, I just don't think, so if, if that sort of theology, that kind of end times, left behind theology, which is really popular in America, if that sort of theology was a meme, I think it would be this meme that, right here, okay? <laughs> I think it's that meme. It's called the Charlie Day meme. Um, it's from a show none of you should be watching. And so, uh, 
it's, it's this, you know, he's making all these connections. He's really replaying the, the real thing is from A Beautiful Mind, if you remember that movie, you probably don't, where they find out this guy has schizophrenia and he's been making all these connections and he thinks he's a secret FBI agent. And I think the Left Behind series is often doing things like that. They're kind of making all these weird, random connections. And, and one of the, the ways that I think the Left Behind series did a poor job of making connections and speculations that look more like that meme uh, is with this term called the Antichrist. So if you know the Left Behind series, you remember the Antichrist name because it was the Christian Voldemort, and it was Nikolai, <laughs> Nikolai Carpathia. <laughs> and Nikolai Carpathia played this figure that was the Antichrist. And this figure was, in the Left Behind series, theology, they said, hey, the Antichrist is going to be this guy who is this political figure of some sort of, in the books, they said Romanian descent. I don't know why that feels kind of racist, but I don't know, uh, some kind of descent who's going to be really winsome, and in these last seven years of the earth, he's going to take over the earth and rule the earth and run the earth, okay? And that's what they said the Antichrist was. Now, the only problem with using that term and saying it's going to be this kind of political figure at the end of the time and saying that's what the Antichrist is, the only problem with that is it's just, it's not in the Bible. <laughs> like, it's not, it just isn't. When you look at first John chapter 2 and John, second John chapter 1 verse 7, and it uses this term Antichrist, you don't get this description of this winsome political figure that's going to take over the world at the end of time. In fact, 1 John and 2 John are the only places in the whole Bible, if you didn't know that, that use this term Antichrist, okay? Now, I, I will say this. There are two other confused. I'm just saying this for the, you know, the Left Behind fans in here. Uh, there are two kind of confusing terms in the Bible. One's in Thessalonians called the man of lawlessness. And one's in Mark 13 uh, called the abomination of desolation. Both of those are, are confusing passages, and, there are, and maybe those, you could get something that looks like the Antichrist as described by the Left Behind series from those. I, I, again, I think those are really hard passages to interpret and to understand, so I personally don't think I would go that direction with those passages. But all that being said, with the term Antichrist specifically, in our Bible where you find Antichrist in 1 John and 2 John, it doesn't sound anything like this left-behind, political, powerful figure at the end of time. Like when you read the description, it just doesn't. And so you can begin to see why I think some of this left-behind theology sounds like that meme that I show, showed you guys. And so if you didn't figure it out by now, today the passage that we're in is, is the main passage where we find this term antichrist and antichrists, plural, used, and we're going to be talking about that today, okay? And I, I, my hope is to help clear up some of our thoughts about what the Antichrist is as the Bible says what the, the Antichrist is. And so if you're new here and you don't know, we've been going through uh, the letter of 1 John the last few weeks, and we'll keep going through 1 John all the way up until September. And if you don't, if you want a little bit of background, 1 John is this letter that John, or maybe the group associated with John, wrote to, uh, 
to the churches that were connected to John and his discipleship ministry. And probably a lot of these churches were really deep into the gospel of John in particular. Some think there was this like school, this Johannian school, that almost like this way of, of discipling people into the way of Jesus with, with the gospel of John in particular. And, and he writes this letter, 1 John, to these different churches that he's connected to. And it seems what he wants to do in the letter is clear up a lot of things. It seems that the church has been sinning in all kinds of ways. It seems that there have been these people who have separated themselves in all kinds of ways, and it's causing confusion and division and all sorts of things. And so 1 John is written to help clarify those things, and 1 John is where we get this term, Antichrist, it's the only place in the Bible, is this author using, especially if, and I believe he probably wrote 2 John as well, some scholars don't, but I think it's this author is the only author that uses this term. And so here's what we're going to do today. The passage that we're in, we're actually in two passages, but it's a set of verses. And so we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 18. We're going to go all the way verse, uh, through verse 27, 18 through 27 of chapter 2. And here's what we're going to do. The first passage is that Antichrist passage. And so when we go through that passage, what I'm just going to do is I'm going to just explain two of the key terms. I think how we can learn that passage well is if I just explain two of those key terms, and then that passage becomes much more understandable. And so I'm going to explain this key term of the last hour and this key term of Antichrist and Antichrists. Um, and then the second passage that we're going to get into, the passage that Kyle read during the scripture reading, that passage is really John is taking this shift from these warnings about the Antichrist, and he starts to give kind of an application. Like he's kind of saying, okay, so now what? What do we do? What are the action steps for us? And so what I hope to do is look at that, understand that, and then hopefully uh, translate that application into how we can apply that same application from 2,000 years ago to, to today in some way. Because uh, some, you really do have to translate the applications a lot of times in the Bible because they, they lived in such a different context than us. And so, so first passage, explain a couple terms. Second passage, application. That's where we're headed today. I'm going to take a drink. All right, let's, let's hop into it. Let's start talking about some Antichrist. First um, John chapter 2, 18... Uh, through 23. It says this, Children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard, that Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they, if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar, if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. Okay, so let's, let's pause there before we get into the next passage. And let's, let's hop into these terms that I talked about uh, that I would explain. I think just explaining these two terms helps us understand what John is trying to teach there. So the first key term that I want us to understand is this last hour term, right? He starts off right out the gates, this is the last hour. So 
If you grew up like I did, reading the Left Behind series and kind of being steeped in that sort of end times culture, when you hear a term like this, you kind of go like, oh, it's, it's, this is the end times. This is it. This is it. Like, this is the, so when you hear that term last hour a lot of times, and that's the culture, like, it's, it's all going to end soon. Jesus is going to return very soon. That's kind, of, that's kind of the mentality that you have. But if you notice, John, 2,000 years ago, is already saying, it's the last hour. So it's been the last hour for like 2,000 years, just kind of an interesting thing. And so this phrase, the last hour, it's kind of used in a variety of ways in the New Testament to mean different things. Usually it's meaning like something is about to happen. Um, But when it's used like this, like how we see it in this passage, it is referring to like a particular era in history and not a literal last hour, right? He, by the time he sent the letter out, it's more than an hour later, right? So he obviously is using this, this phrase more metaphorically than he is literally. And, and, and when you see the Bible use this term, the last hour, in this kind of way, it's referring to the era in history, like kind of like the last era of, in history of God's work in the world before he returns, so when you see the New Testament authors use this, they're, they're, they're really using this as a blanket way to say, like, God has been working in history in all kinds of ways, doing different things, revealing more and more of himself, with the climatic moment being through his son and through the cross and through the resurrection. And so this last hour is this kind of last era in history before God comes back and and wraps everything up, before he renews the earth, before he judges everybody. Like that, that's that when the New Testament authors are using last hour like this, that's that's what they're saying. They're referring to a whole era in history that they themselves wouldn't know how long it would have lasted. Maybe they thought it was going to be shorter. Maybe they, they had more mystery about it. We, we're not sure. And, I, and I, I just think it's worth noting that, that that's how last hour is used in the Bible. Because my whole life, I've been hearing, it's the end times, Anthony. It's, it's soon. It's soon, Anthony. It's the last hour, Anthony. Like It's going to be wrapped up soon. And listen, I hope that's true. But when the New Testament authors use similar language, it took 2,000 years. And, so, and it's been 2,000 years. And so the reality is, in the arc of God's work in history, we're in the end times. We've been in the end times since Jesus went to the cross. That's what a lot of scholars think. When Jesus started using this language, it seems like it, the end times exist from when Jesus went to the cross all the way to when he returns again one day. And renews all things and judges all of us. Like that's, that's the end times. And so, you know, in, in American end times theology, we're like, yeah, man, it, yeah, it's, it's the last days. I'm like, I don't know. It could be a thousand more years. Pin drops. Because people are like, no way. I know it could be. It could be 2,000 more years. I don't know. I hope it's like before the end of the sermon. But like I... <laughs> but... 
But it, it could be a really long time. And so anytime you see this phrase, the last hour, used in the New Testament, or used kind of like this, there's some variations of this in the New Testament, but last hour is kind of how it's used. It's, it's not talking about the last seven years of the earth, necessarily. It's talking about the time in history where God is kind of doing this final work of bringing all of the nations into him to believe and follow him until he returns one day. And so when John says this is the last hour, that's what he means. He's like, this is like the last era in history of God's work before he returns. Does that make sense? So we don't know. We don't know how long it could be. It could be a thousand years. It could be a minute. It could be 2,000 years. Who knows? It could be longer than that even too. Which see, You see how steeped I am in left behind theology because I'm like, not more than 2,000 years. Like, no way. And so, so that's last hour. I think that helps us understand the passage a little bit. The second uh, term, this is the term you guys all been waiting for, is antichrist. So let's talk through this term, antichrist, how this passage is using antichrist, what an antichrist is. And so what you saw in the passage is it uses antichrist singular, and then it uses antichrists plural, okay? Uh, so again, and left behind, the antichrist is this powerful end of history figure who has sometimes like literal powers, he's winsome politically, and he takes over the world. And then, let's just look at those verses that I just read about the Antichrist. I'm reading it. I don't see any of that. I don't see any of that in this passage. And guess what? Neither do you, because it's not in this passage. Like, it's just, when you see how John is using this term antichrist, he's not talking about some powerful end-of-time figure. In fact, it seems like the antichrist and antichrist seems to be, like, maybe the reason that John wrote this letter. People that study the, the first John, the scholars that really get deep into it, it seems that verses 18 and 19 give kind of one of the huge reasons John wrote this letter. Throughout the letter so far, there's been these hints that there's these divisions in the church, there's this sin that's been creeping up in the church, uh, and different kinds of things, and that John's needed to clarify some things. Uh, but this passage kind of spells it out a little bit more clearly. It seems like there was this person and group referred to as Antichrist and Antichrists that were going around teaching something that denied the Christness of Jesus or something that denied the Son and the Father's connection to one another in some kind of way. If you look at verses 22 and 23, that seems to be what the Antichrist and the Antichrist were doing. They were, some, and then it also seems like they were part of the church. Like it seems like they went out from us. They weren't like they they weren't really part of us, and that's why they went out from us. And they went out. It seems teaching these ideas that something about Jesus not really being the Christ, and something about. Jesus' connection to the Father or his divinity, like it's not exactly clear, but something there about the Son and the Father and their connection. And so it might be helpful to understand what Christ means in the New Testament. Christ in the New Testament is not a last name, it's a title. And so when, uh, when people call Jesus the Christ, uh, they're, they're giving him a title that was used by the Jewish people uh, about this figure that they, they, they saw being talked about in, in their Old Testament. And so, so Christ itself, it, it literally just means anointed one. Or you could even translate Christ the chosen one. And so 
saying that Jesus was the Christ, you got to think about the biblical times and anointing and how they used it. Often with anointing, how anointing worked in the Bible, it was this way to show where God was moving. It was this way to show where God's creation and God himself met. And so a lot of times different things would get anointed and it was almost like this symbol of like God saying like I am here and I'm almost like I'm redeeming creation in a way where God and creation are back together again. And so what they would do in Israel is they would anoint their kings. They would say like this is God's cho- chosen king. God is going to use this king. Like we've all, we uh, within the last year went through the story where David gets anointed. And so, so the idea that Jesus was the Christ was this idea that Jesus is God's special anointed one. Because this term, it, it began to take on a much more powerful term for the Jewish people and the Christians. It began to be this term saying, like, who is this person that's going to come and restore everything and be the everlasting king and reconcile our relationship with God and rescue us from oppression? Like, who is that person? It's going to be the Christ. And so Jesus, when he has this title, and we call him Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, it's he, he is this, he has this special anointing, eternal kingship, unlike any other. And then what happened with the early Christians is with this term Christ, it really began to have these deep connections to the divinity of Jesus. That almost like saying that Jesus was the Christ was like saying that he's fully man and fully God. He truly is the Son of God. And so this is kind of how this term Christ gets used. And so, so this term Christ has this robust, layered meaning that was saying that Jesus is this chosen and anointed one who is going to bring heaven and earth back together for eternity. And he was going to rescue all of humanity. And he was going to be the God King in the flesh. That's really a lot of what that term Christ means. And it seems like this Antichrist group, because there was a group of them, there was more than one, was denying some aspect of that when it came to Jesus. I, we don't know exactly, it doesn't say very specifically. Some aspect of Jesus' Christness, what the early Christians were saying was Jesus' Christness, they were denying some aspect of that. And they were, uh, they were going around teaching contrary things uh, to that. And so this is why they got the title Antichrist. They were against Jesus as the Christ. They, were the, they, they denied Christ. They denied the Christ aspect of Jesus. I, I wonder if they, there was other aspects of Jesus that they were totally fine with believing and thinking about, and some different scholars and historians think that's probably the case. And so that's why, specifically, John uses this term Antichrist and Antichrist. Again, notice... When you look at the passage closely, closely, you see what's being said here. The Antichrist is not some powerful figure at the end of time. It's some person and some group that's going around denying some aspect of Jesus' Christness. Now, I, I have left behind deep in my bones, and I know some of you do as well. And so I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, listen, Anthony... That's because you're reading it wrong. Verse 18 starts off talking about the one Antichrist that is to come. That's Nikolai Carpathia. And 
the Antichrist are all like the junior Antichrist until he comes. And, that, and, and, and so you've got to reconcile that for me, Anthony, because that's how I've always been taught that. And so I want, to, I want to reconcile that by looking at the one other place where this term is used and to show you the singular pluralness of the way this word is being used is not exactly totally clear in the, in the, in, in the sense of pointing to some kind of left-behind type of a theology. And so... Um, so, Second John, verse seven says this. It's only one chapter. Verse seven of Second John says this: Many deceivers, plural, have gone out into the world. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. So, what I want you to see there is the verse starts off talking about plural deceivers. And then when it gets to this term antichrist, it goes back to singular, but it's calling all of the, the, the plural deceivers this singular term antichrist. And I'm just pointing out that to show that if you think that the antichrist is only or primarily some political figure at the end of time that just doesn't match what the Bible is saying about that term antichrist. You want to go to man of lawlessness and all that, that's fine. That's a different convo. I'm not preaching that today. <laughs> but the term antichrist is just not used that way. It was some person that denied some aspect of Jesus. Here we got a little bit more, like something about Jesus coming in the flesh in some kind of way. I wonder if it's God coming in the flesh fully. I don't, I don't know, fully man, fully God. I, it could be that, but we don't know. It doesn't say specifically. And so Antichrist in 1 John seems to be a title applied to a whole group of people that denied something about Jesus' Christness. Okay? And I think perhaps maybe that you see the singular there in verse 18, because maybe there was one guy who really got the ball rolling on this kind of teaching. Maybe there was one guy who was this guy who was going around purposely separating himself, and maybe that's why John said, you heard that the Antichrist is coming, because maybe he was like this itinerant teacher, and he was teaching these things, and more people came along with him, and more people began to teach with him, and thus now one guy who was like this Antichrist guy teaching these Antichrist things, he, he becomes a group, and it's Antichrist and a group of deceivers. Okay, so that, that's what I think the Antichrist is. It was some group of people that were denying some aspect of Jesus' Christness. I don't think there's a ton of biblical merit to say the Antichrist, as the New Testament uses that term, is this winsome political figure at the end of time. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I don't think I am. <laughs> like I, I, I might not know exactly what the Antichrist is, but at least in this passage, it doesn't seem to point to kind of that, uh, you know, left behind vision of the Antichrist. And so I go deep into that, not to try to be like, oh, look, I know so much more than you or whatever, but I, I do think some of these teachings about the end times in America are bad teachings, and they twist things, and, and, and they're not good, and, and often people that think about the end times, they get really obsessed with them, like, and they forget about everything else, and I just think that's maybe a fruit, that these maybe aren't the best uh, teachings of, of some sort, and so, I, and then also, I just want to clarify for us what these terms mean. When you look at the text where Antichrist is used, that's just, it's not used in the way that I was taught growing up. It just doesn't look like that. It's, it's someone or a group that denies some aspect of Jesus' Christness. Okay, so you can email me if you want, I guess. Uh, 
Um, all right, let's, let's read the next passage and kind of get into John's application for the day. So the next passage, verse 24, we'll read through 27. It says this, What you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. I have written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all the things and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, remain in him. It's interesting, in both passages, before we get to the application, John is referring to the churches, the people of God's anointing that they have in God. Uh, some scholars think there's a play of words, a play on of words happening here. There's these people going around denying some aspect of the anointing of Jesus. And so John goes, no, guys, listen, like, you have been anointed by Jesus, the anointed one who's anointed you with the Holy Spirit. And you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit himself can help you under, see that, that their teachings are off. Just, I, I say that just to give more evidence why there's this, this idea of the Antichrist is, is probably closer to what I'm saying rather than farther from what I'm saying and more like left behind. Man, if the, one of the authors was in here, they would be livid. Um, uh, so you can see why this, these verses 24 through 27, you can see why like John in his day and his time would, would need to say something like this. It was a time where all sorts of religions were sprouting up, all sorts of cults were sprouting up of all kinds, and, and people were teaching all kinds of things, and they probably sounded good, and they probably were interesting. And so John has to write to them, especially because of this anti-Christ faction of people, and he has to say, like, hey, if they're saying something kind of new or different or weird, and it's not what you first heard us teach about Jesus, like, don't believe it. In fact, John's application is, remain in Jesus, which in the Gospel of John, there's a whole section about what that means, abiding in Jesus, and it's this beautiful passage. But he kind of adds on to what it means to remain in Jesus, and he says, the way to remain in Jesus is to believe and hold on to what you heard from the beginning. Like he's saying, the things that we first taught you about Jesus, the things that we were witness to, to you about Jesus, you, you need to hold on to those things. That's part of remaining in God. And, and, and for John, the stakes seem pretty high. He, he sees these other groups and factions as, as being so powerful enough to like cause people to not see God clearly, to not see Jesus clearly anymore. I think this is part of why he says, like, remember what we told you from the beginning because that is the Jesus who has eternal life for you. And so I think there's this, this you know, John, it's, there's this urgency for John who's saying, hey, remain in him by holding on to what you heard from the beginning. Now, in the New Testament, this idea of holding on to the teaching from the beginning or even what could be considered the word of God, uh, often scholars, and even the New Testament kind of calls it the apostolic teaching. And so if you don't know what apostolic teaching is, is the apostolic teaching and teachers were the 11 minus Judas that were with Jesus being trained up. to Like Jesus was training them up to teach what he taught to people. Like that's why he was with, like he wanted them to go out one day and teach what he taught to people. And so it's those 11 
And then there's one more, I think it's Matthias in Acts 2 that was around a bunch that uh, replaces Judas. And so the apostolic teaching is this teaching of these eyewitnesses of Jesus that they, they, they probably had like, like Jesus' teachings literally memorized. And they were like going around teaching these things. And that, uh, even though, you know, there's some other kinds of apostles in the New Testament, I think they were probably trained to teach those things as well because they didn't have Bibles like we have Bibles. They did have the letters and they were passing the letters all around. But a lot of times the ways that the letters were being passed around were just through this oral tradition. And so uh, John says, like, hey, to, to remain in God, to remain in him, to continue on in a healthy relationship with Jesus, hold on to that apostolic teaching. Hold on to what you heard from the beginning. That's kind of the application that John is giving them and saying, hey, this is how to combat the, the, the Antichrist faction and the things they're teaching. And so this is kind of the application for today. Remain in Jesus by holding on to the original Christian teachings. Remain in Jesus by holding on to the original Christian teachings. This is, passages like this are part of why guys like me have such a high view of the Bible. Besides the fact that it seems that God makes it clear to me at least that, that he uses these words in scripture as his words. Like these are his words to his people. But also situations like this where there's this apostolic witness and tradition. Like this is the, the, the Bible, the New Testament, is our best witness to the early Christian teachings about Jesus. And John seems to think holding on to that and understanding that well helps us to see Jesus for who he really is. And, and, and so I think it should be part of our commitment as Christians to think through, okay, what does it mean for me to remain in him by holding on to what they heard from the beginning, holding on to the apostolic teachings of some sort. I, I think that that helps us to see who God really is. And this is why you get most Christians have this very high view of the Bible. Like we're not trying to be dogmatic, but it is this best witness to who Jesus is and what he does and all this stuff. And, and, and the, the, the early Christians, they saw when people deviated from that, you know, they came up with crazy titles for them, like Antichrist and things like that. Like, it was very serious for them. And so, so I think there's, there's a part of our Christian faith to hold on to what they heard from the beginning. And I say what they heard from the beginning because they're, they're so much closer to the witness of Jesus and understanding that. And, and I think it's so important for us to try to get as close to, uh, to that as we can. But that's really hard 2,000 years later. Anybody in the room that's studied Christian history and looked at different Christian traditions, you hear me say that and you go, sounds nice, right? My best friend's Roman Catholic. He'd be like, good luck, right? Like, that's it. This is like one of his main things when we talk about stuff. But right now, Christianity, 2,000 years later, has split up into three uh, large factions, Roman Catholics, Protestants, and Eastern Orthodox. And there's a few others, but those are the three the three major factions. And although those groups tend to mostly agree on the core things of Christianity, there are a lot of significant things that there's a big amount of difference on. And so when I'm up here going, hey, hold on to what you heard from the beginning, you're going, how? How is that possible? How do we do that? When there's been so many different interpretations of this New Testament, when people take it so many different kinds of ways. Well, and so here's what I want to do for the rest of the sermon. I just want to talk about that idea. 
Because what I've noticed is, as a pastor, a lot of times, as people start studying Christian history, as people start studying other Christian traditions, and then they compare them to some of the dogmatic things in their own church, it makes them want to walk away from the faith, or it makes them want to water down their own faith, right? And so what I want to do here is I want to just talk about some ways, some practices of myself that have helped me to hold on to what they heard from the beginning. Some things that I think all Christians could do, no matter what tradition they're in, in a variety of ways. And different traditions would do this differently. But, and so the, the rest of the sermon, it's not so much like, here's a Bible verse on how to do this and this and this. This is more just Pastor Anthony just being like, hey, if you're in this moment where you're starting to see some things in history and you're, gonna, you're wanting to water down the Christian faith or not be as committed to it, I think there's actually a way to get through that where you have a more nuanced faith and a more robust faith where you don't have to feel like ashamed of of holding on to what they heard from the beginning because I do think this is part of the way that we uh, continue in and remain in God in certain ways that John seemed to think that and so I think that that is the case for us as well so I, I have like just nine different things for how do we read this book and understand this book and connect to this book and hear what this book is saying in a, in a way that we're truly understanding the, the, the teachings of Jesus, okay? And so I'm just going to go through them quickly. Uh, the first thing is this, is just have, a, have humility, like have true humility when you approach the Word of God. I think uh, often as American Christians, we, we don't have a f- humility about our faith. Often our faith sounds more like how the media, all the talking heads in the media talk about things. Like the way that we talk about God's word and our faith, it's just like, it's so arrogant at times. And I I actually think it's hard to hear the word of God and what it's saying if you're not approaching it humbly, understanding your finiteness, understanding that, uh, that you need others even to help you understand this well. So that's the first thing with humility. I think the next way to do this is with the Spirit, okay, with the Holy Spirit. I think when it comes to the Bible, we often almost like read the Bible outside of our relationship with God because it's, it's an ancient text. It's easy to just study it like a scholar, and I don't even think that's necessarily bad. But when we as Christians read the Bible devoid of our relationship with God, I do think that is problematic. I think there is an aspect of how we approach the Bible and how we read God's word where we have to do it with the Spirit. We have to invite the Spirit to do a work in us while that's um, happening. And so, you know, there's, there's a caution here because there's a lot of people who are the Holy Spirit people and they hear all kinds of things from God that, like, aren't in the Bible. And you're like, I, I don't know, man. Like, uh, Maybe that's not accurate, you know? And I think there, there's a caution there. On the flip side, there's all kinds of people who uh, just... Uh, well, on the flip side of that, there's all, there's all sorts of times where I really truly think it was the Holy Spirit that helped me understand parts of the Bible, especially in my younger years where I didn't have access to scholars or whomever to help me understand something where the Spirit kind of guided me into good interpret- interpretations. So, so there's that. All right, three. Um, how do we hold on to this, what they heard from the beginning, which, is, which is, I believe, again, to be clear, is the New Testament, is the Bible. Um, be willing to learn and read the Bible more than just on a Sunday. 
more than just on a Sunday, and through more than just your favorite preachers. I, I think if you're a Christian, it's hard to get away from this sort of continuing, continuous learning that we're kind of called to be part of as Christians. And so I know a lot of us, we, we don't like learning. I think some of that is because we learn in different ways. And most of the ways in Western society that we learn is through some guy just talking for a long time. Um, and so that's okay if you don't like that or it's hard for you to learn in that way. I would just encourage you to find ways for you to learn about the Bible and what the Bible is saying that meets you where you're at and is in a way that you can actually learn. Um, because I think if you really want to understand these ancient texts, if you really want to hold on to what they heard from the beginning, you, you have to have a good understanding of, this, of the Bible and not just a simplistic understanding of the Bible, okay? Um, four, fourth tip. Try to learn what the true nature of the Bible is and what it is and see that it has a historical trustworthiness. Uh, often the Bible gets portrayed as this like 2,000-year game of telephone, right? And that's just not what it is. Like you can study the, the historical accuracy of it pretty well. And there's certainly different words and things that have been hard to translate throughout history. And I think that's totally worth studying and talking about. But there's this historical reliability to it. But something I've noticed in Christian circles, especially American evangelical circles, there's this kind of like mentality about the Bible, like people were like sitting down and God just possessed them and they're like, oh, yeah, 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 like, like that, like, and wrote it down. And now there are sections of the Bible where that kind of sounds like how it was written a little bit. But most of the Bible, God uses real people with their real personalities and their real thoughts to write his word. And that can be hard and can be jarring and can cause you to walk away. But if you have a true understanding that this is how God brought his word into the world, then uh, I think you, it, it can be easier for you to have a robust faith. And so if you need resources on that and just understanding the nature of the Bible, its accuracy, right now one of our book clubs is doing a book on this called Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible by Michael Bird. Great book to pick up on that. Uh, there's this professor named Daniel Wallace who does this great talk. You could just Google it, and it's on YouTube, uh, where he says, is the Bible that we have, is the New Testament we have now what they had then? Really great. The first 30 minutes of it, you're going to be scared, but then the last 30 minutes, you'll be like, oh, okay, I see it. So, because he's very, um, he's, he's good at teaching what's true and real about the Bible. So, um, so that's four or five. Try to understand what Christians across the globe believe. Uh, and see where there is consensus. I, I think this is really important because often our culture can twist us in a way that the way that we read the Bible is through our cultural lens and our specific cultural lenses. And we can be so sure the Bible is saying something because we have some sort of an American reading of the Bible. And so I found it particularly helpful to see globally what do Christians think about this thing. And you're going to see in different cultures, they have different idols and things that cause them to, to not see things for what they are. But you're going to also find a lot of consensus across wildly different cultures. And I think that will help you show, okay, this is probably good Christian uh, teaching. There's a great textbook on this uh, called Majority World Theology, Christian Doctrine in a Global Context. That's a great book to just kind of see what Christians across the world believe about the Bible. Um, okay, number six. Understand this. There are open-handed issues and there are closed-handed issues when it comes to the Bible. Uh, some people call it first-order issues, second-order issues, third-order issues. Essentially, in some, closed-handed issues are issues that, like, all Christians should believe, and it basically defines if we're a Christian or not, if we believe these things. So in, in church history, the classic closed-handed issue is the Trinity, 
that God is somehow Father, Son, and Spirit distinctly, and yet one God. I can't explain it, but (laughs) that's like a close-handed issue in in the history of Christianity. Open-handed issues, they are issues that Christians can disagree on that you find in the Bible and still be Christians and still be good Christians and still be strong Christians in all kinds of ways. And I say that because we get so dogmatic about our open-handed issues and we think we, like certain people aren't Christians if they have a difference of agreement on on something that's more debatable in the Bible. So for instance, if you believe the left behind stuff, you're still Christian. I still love you. Like you're still, and you're still strong and good Christian. Like I really, as much as I made fun of left behind today, I, I really, I really do think that. And so I think too often when we don't understand that, our faith starts to crumble or our our, um, trustworthiness in the Bible itself because our our local churches often are very heavy-handed with some open-handed issues. And I I think it's okay to have strong convictions around open-handed issues, but I think when we have a heavy-handed around it, that starts to... um, you know, almost pervert what the Bible's trying to do at times. So, uh, seven, seventh tip, be careful of the pendulum swing. A lot of times you grow up hearing one thing, then you go find out other people believe the other thing, you believe the exact opposite uh, because you're kind of reacting to the pain of something you heard in your childhood. So for us, those of us that grew up Pentecostal, a lot of times a lot of weird stuff happened to us, so then the pendulum swing is like, Holy Spirit isn't even real. Like, and that's just not a good, that's, that's heresy. And so like, that's not a good pendulum swing. So just notice that in yourself and be okay with being like, okay, maybe I don't need a pendulum swing every time something like this happens. Uh, number eight. This is just good for us to know. Sometimes the ways that Christians have interpreted the Bible throughout history has been wrong. It's just been wrong. You, and I think the main way you tell is by the fruit of what, what happens with their belief. Right? When you look at how Christians at times thought about, the, uh, about slavery, uh, about the Crusades. Uh, there was even wars over communion and baptism. <laughs> like, like you can go, that is not right, right? Like, that is not right. And so there, there are times where we have to, like, course correct as Christians to see that there's, there's things that are off in, in what we're believing. And the fruit is often a great example of the fruit of that being, like, when there is bad fruit from something, I, I, it's very valid to start to go, like, is this even Christian teaching? So uh, final tip is this, is to live out your faith when it comes to all this stuff, if the Bible is just theory for you, if the Bible is just theor- theoretics for you, like, it, it, it's just not going to, like, you're not going to understand Jesus' commands until you begin to live them out. If loving your neighbor is just theoretical and you're not actually loving your neighbor, you're not going to understand what it means to love your neighbor. And you're not going to understand why love is so important. You're not going to understand all of these different kinds of things unless you're living out your faith. And so I would say to, to be able to hold on to what they heard from the beginning, one of the ways to do that is to actually live out your faith. So that's a lot, but I have a lot of these kinds of conversations with everybody individually, and so I was like, I'm just going to say a bunch of this stuff right now. And so my hope is that we, we have a better understanding of what antichrists are, and my hope is we all kind of go, okay, what does it mean for me to remain in him by holding on to what they heard from the beginning, which I think the New Testament is a good witness of that and an accurate witness of what they heard from the beginning. And so, uh, and I think that helps our faith in certain ways. In a time where it's becoming more and more popular to like not believe in any sort of trustworthiness of the Bible. I just think 
you have to look at how the New Testament Christians were like, man, this thing, this, this, this stuff is important. We got to hold on to it. So, so, church, may we be a people that remain in Jesus and, don't, and, and see true aspects of his Christness and we remain in him because of the mercy of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together to talk through uh, what can be like confusing things for us uh, 2,000 years later, God. This faith, I mean, you clearly, God, are working because this faith has stuck around in so many and more and more throughout the last 2,000 years. But God, sometimes it's hard for us to know exactly what you're trying to say or teach us or show us. And so, God, I pray today through everything that we talked about, I just pray uh, two things. One, that we understand some of these confusing terms a little bit more accurately. And then two, God, we figure out what it means for us to remain in you by holding on to what they heard from the beginning, which, of course, is the New Testament, God. And so, God, help us with that. Help us to be able to do that well. We need you to do that well. And uh, if there was anything, God, that I said that was not worth hearing, I just pray we all forget it. And so, Lord, we love you and we need you. Amen.